0: West End Abbey is a contemplative vineyard church in the west end of Winnipeg, in Manitoba, Canada. This is a homily from one of our services. What do I do when people hurt me? That's uh, Peter's question, essentially, to Jesus. Lord, how many times do I forgive this person? Seven? And his assumption Well, there's two assumptions. The first assumption is that I will get hurt in this thing. People will hurt me, and I will have to forgive them. And the second assumption is there must surely be a limit to how much forgiveness I dispense to the same dude or person who keeps hurting me. There has to be a limit. Right, Lord? And Jesus' response is to give this very um, rich parable, uh, which essentially, I think, says that forgiveness, although it is important to consider what has been done or not done to me, what has hurt me, the parable might suggest that actually it's more a matter of what God has done than even what the person or the people have done. Um, just a word on parables. I really love this this kind of description or explanation of how parables function and the dynamics of a parable. This is from the Welsh New Testament scholar and theologian C. H. Dodd. and he he kind of says um, that parables are something that's supposed to stop the hearer in their tracks and make you sort of doubt, the precise application of it to your life in order to tease your mind into active thought. I love that, to tease your mind into active thought. It's like you're you're sitting with this teaching and it's rumbling around like clothes in a dishwasher. Like what what the heck does this really mean? That's what a parable is meant to do, right? So in this first part, I want to focus on the first part of the parable, which essentially is this king's dealings with this slave, slave number one. And the image that we get of this king, first of all and foremost, is basically one of a bookkeeper, a judge, who's calling to account everybody in his kingdom, all the people that work for him, all the slaves. Every single person has to come and settle accounts with the king uh, if you remember when we talked about the reign of Christ, you know, when I talked about, the, you know, God as judge or king is not a very popular notion. It's easier and perhaps more comfortable to just dismiss that whole aspect of of God because nobody wants to be judged. But here the parable begins with Jesus very clearly saying, this is like the kingdom. There was a king and he calls to account all those in his kingdom, all the slaves and this first slave owes 10,000 talents, which I imagine when Jesus told this parable would have like elicited this massive laugh from the audience because 10,000 talents would have been more than the coinage in circulation in an entire kingdom. Usually a king in that time annually would, would like generate around 200 talents, right? So the the amount here that this slave owes is absolutely astronomical. It's ridiculous to the point of absurdity. You know, uh, originally uh, a talent was like a thirty kilogram weight, and usually in silver, and one talent was about six thousand days of work, days' wages, like half a lifetime of work. So so ten thousand talents is like sixty million days of work. This guy owes 60 million days of work in order to pay back this sum, right? Which, of course, is absurd. There's no possible way that he can pay this debt. Now, in Jesus's time, people viewed um, sin as debt to God. We get even that in the, the the translation in the Lord's Prayer. You know, "Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors." That's kind of the the background from from which we get that word debt. And I like that word because when there is sin, um al- always there's something that's taken. It could be literal, you know, somebody stole my bike from our garage once. Well, that was a sin. They they literally took something from me. But there's also this hard to name psychological, emotional, spiritual cost to sin as well, you know? Uh well, there was one time when I um, I think I was a teenager and I guess I felt like I was in desperate times and needed money or something, and so I, I stole some money from my dad. I wasn't in desperate times. That was I had everything I needed and more, but I stole like 20 or 40 Hong Kong dollars from my dad's wallet, you know? And because I wasn't a very like clever thief, obviously he knew that it was gone, and he knew it was me. <laughs> right, and so of course I felt absolutely terrible that I'd stolen this money from my own father. I'd stolen from my own dad, and so I gave him back the money because that would that's literally what it cost him. this The sin cost him $40, but I remember looking at his face when he realized that I had stolen from him. I can't describe the look on the face. Perhaps you could imagine what it may feel like to have someone in your house steal from you I took something from him beyond just $40, you know? Perhaps I stole the trust that he had in me that if I needed something, I would ask and not just go behind his back and pluck it out of his wallet, right? Sin always takes something from someone, whether literally or spiritually. There's always a cost. There's always a cost. And this first slave, the one who owes 60 million days of work, to the king, kind of stands for all of us. We don't like to think of it this way, but this parable Jesus is teaching says it very clearly that when it comes down to it, whether we like it or not, whether we can admit it or not, somehow we all have this ridiculous, unpayable debt to God beyond what we could ever, ever afford to repay. And so I think one of the best spiritual gifts uh, we can actually receive is to recognize, not just intellectually, but experientially, to have some sort of felt awareness. Oh my gosh, like I am in debt to God. How all that works, I don't know. God doesn't really lose things. You can't take things away from God. God doesn't become less God. And yet in this parable, the slave clearly owes the king something that he could never pay back he's indebted to the king right and so the king pronounces judgment this guy needs to be chucked in prison with his wife and his kids until every last penny is paid which is ridiculous he can't pay it and so what does he do well he does what most of us probably would do he falls to his knees and he says please have patience with me and I'll pay you back everything which, of course, is absolutely ridiculous. There's no way he can pay back everything. But the simple act of falling to his knees and asking for mercy is is now what opens the door for him to get mercy. He asks for mercy, and he then gets mercy. And so the second thing, alongside this image of God as king and judge, which is very clear in the parable and throughout the whole of Scripture, is that God is a compassionate and kind king and judge. God Or the king in this parable looks at this helplessly indebted slave and it says that uh, the king had pity on him. Another word for that is compassion. And I love that word in the New Testament because it means like physiologically he, he felt some rumbles in his guts. You know? Something deep within his body was very moved you know maybe there was even an audible groan or something i don't know and perhaps it was that the king that this poor slave is utterly and totally helpless he cannot any in any way shape or form pay this debt and the king is moved with pity and compassion and then says to him essentially i'm releasing you and forgiving you this debt This is so radical. It's, if, if the debt was so astronomical, while well, the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness here are equally astronomical and immediate, the king is not like, okay, let me get back to you in one week. I'll, I'll tally the books. I'll count the numbers. It's almost like a knee-jerk reaction, a gut reflex. I see this person who is helpless and is asking for mercy, and I'll give mercy. And like I was saying earlier, you know, forgiveness always has a cost. Well, the king is now out sixty million. Somehow, the king has absorbed sixty million wages, work work workday wages, somehow into himself. And that's what real love is and does. Right? Real love always costs the lover and benefits the beloved. There's always a cost to real love. I uh, I somehow, this hit home for me in a, in a real way just recently because I was invited um, to go to India on this trip, which I would love to do. I'd get to see my family. I'd get to do this, that, and the other. But of course, it would mean that I'd have to leave, you know, the family at home. And so Jennifer said to me, well, you know, I would bless you to go if you want to go, and I'll just figure it out. Um, I remember feeling the, the great love in that because for her to send me off means that she's now doing all of the parenting, morning, noon, and night, and all of the household stuff and all of the housekeeping. And I remember feeling, regardless of whether I choose to go on this trip or not, that is real love. She's absorbing the cost of me flitting off across the ocean <laughs> to a country. She's absorbing the cost of me not being there in and of herself. And that's what the king does here to this slave, absorbing 60 million days of work and unpayable, an unpayable debt in, into himself. And so to finish this first part here, God's forgiveness, Jesus is saying, in no uncertain terms, has no limit. No limit. St. Paul would say it this way, where your sin abounds, where the debt is unpayable, where you've screwed it up so many times over and over again, and even if you recognize that this is never going to be repaid fully by me, that is when grace somehow covers and abounds more, right? God's forgiveness has no limit.